Welcome to Get It, a podcast about cybersecurity insights for the foreseeable future, brought to you by CDW and Cisco. I'm Amanda Capito. In this episode, we're going to take a look at security best practices when working from home. Now, CDW and Cisco are known for providing leading work from home strategies and solutions. Today, we'll hear from some of their security experts who are helping teams around the world connect securely. I'll be joined by Theo Van Wick, Head of Cybersecurity at CDW Canada, Chris Graziano, Cybersecurity Team Lead at CDW Canada, and Mike Storm, Distinguished Engineer for the Security Business Group at Cisco. So let's get started. Thank you all for joining me today on this roundtable. I'm really excited to talk about best practices with regard to working from home. But just off the top, I want to hear from each of you. Do you think working from home can be more secure than working from an office? Theo, let's start with you. Thanks, Amanda. So that is a very interesting question. I I think when you break it down for a moment, you think about uh, all the factors that go into it. There might actually be scenarios that working from home can be, let's go with at least as secure as working from the office. If you look at uh, your technologies, if you configure it properly and you follow the proper lines, a lot of organizations are already planning for remote users and making sure they can securely connect in a manner that is most likely equal to or who knows in some, some scenarios maybe even better than working from the office. All right, Chris, what about you? I uh, would definitely have to agree with uh, Theo on that one. It can be just as secure as working uh, from an office environment, but it really depends on the uh, technology and the um, protocols that you've put in place in your environment. Um, so with today's technology and, and a lot of the work-from-home procedures that are being um, uh, pushed out to employees working remotely, uh, there's definitely the capability of being just as secure at home as you would be in an office environment. Mike, would you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree, especially with the word depends. Um, I think it's important to understand what the security posture is of the company that's hosting uh, the remote access, what you know, what security profiles are being used, how exactly communications are occurring. Is it being backhauled? Is it split tunneled? Uh, because a lot of those variations can not only put the user at risk, but could potentially risk company assets by by way of VPN and so forth. So it really depends on the policies and procedures that are put in place by the host company. All right, you mentioned VPN. So let's talk about virtual private networks. What are the benefits of setting one up? Mike, why don't we start with you? Well, you know, v- the great thing about VPN is it provides a secure channel. Uh, it provides secure channel between endpoints, between sites. I mean, that's really the, you know, the, the, the primary benefit of VPN. The problem that you have with VPNs is depending upon how those endpoints actually interact with the VPN, uh, you can actually cause more damage. Uh, So I've always told people VPN is not equal to security. Uh, Just because you have a VPN doesn't mean your communications are secure. And to give you an example, if you're allowing your endpoint users that are working over VPN to split tunnel, where they're using their own local internet connection for, uh, you know, for things like browsing the web, et cetera, the potential for some attack being launched that could actually jump onto the VPN and then go direct into the business is higher. So you really have to determine, you know, what that security posture should be at the main organization and make sure you're extending that level of uh, protection all the way down to the end user. I think Mike has got it absolutely right. Uh, one of the big things we, you know, we, we keep reminding people is VPN is secure access from the, let's call it the edge of your laptop 
to the edge of the network or the spot where you land or or end up terminating that VPN. So anything, to my point, that's happening inside of the laptop potentially is not protected um, by the VPN. And then uh, Mike has another great point. Uh, split tunneling is so important. A lot of organizations will actually split tunnel traffic to avoid bringing all that traffic back to corporate uh, head offices or to the VPN termination point so that they don't overload those links. But inherently, uh, once you do that, then you have to consider the fact that that traffic is now exiting locally and outside of the, the scope of the VPN. So sort of that depends, again, you have to you have to understand what you're using it for and then it's balanced for the risk uh, profile for that user and what you're trying to accomplish. Okay, so speaking about risk profiles for users right now, we're obviously in an era where lots of people are working from home. In many cases, there's multiple users in a single household. What are some of the risks just in general that come with working from home? Theo, let's start with you. I think the, when you break it down from that perspective, there's a few elements we can look at the risk, right? Uh, there could obviously be a concern in terms of the data or unlocked laptop. Uh, you would under some a lot of circumstances, you hope that within your house it is a fairly secure environment. But the reality is, you cannot rely on that. So a lot of uh, a lot of policies will dictate. And the correct way to tackle this is to treat it as if you're sitting at at uh, at the office, right? So assume that in proper like office behavior or proper etiquette, we're trying to uh, educate people and employees on always locking their laptops when they're stepping away. Be mindful of who's looking at the screen. And I think it's important to think that when you're doing this at home, it's not that you're distrusting other people or the family members, whoever else is in the household with you. Uh, the reality is here, you're applying good security measures. And so, you know, keep that behavior. If you follow that, then uh, that is not, that is much less of an issue. Uh, we can also start looking at uh, sharing the wireless with you. Now, again, if you do that VPN and you encrypt traffic, that gives you some form of a wrapper of security there. Uh, but the reality is you want to make sure that your home Wi-Fi is configured and set up securely, at least to a, a manner or a point where it provides a similar type of protection that you would expect from the office location or from a best practice configuration. Mike, anything to add to that? You know, I've always told people that work from home, pretend that you're at a Starbucks or some public place and the machine that you're working on is glued to the table so nobody can steal it. However you would work on that system, if you have to get up and go do something, how are you, what state are you going to leave that machine? You know, what you, what you click on, what you browse to, how you conduct yourself in that environment should be the same way you treat it at home, just to make sure you're keeping that business data safe. So you got to think, just, you know, just like uh, Cleo said, there's, you know, there's certain things you can't control. I mean, physical security is a big one, obviously network and transport security, which is being handled by the VPN. Uh, but even just the the type of browser you use, and you know, a lot of times it's it, you know kind of lends itself to the need to have direct protection on that endpoint that's actually protecting you from the local connection when you're not on the VPN as well, because uh, that's how you know that's how threats uh, propagate. That's how they become prevalent across these networks. Right, and so keeping with this vein of threats and threats that come via networks. Um, I know video conferencing, of course, also now becoming very popular um, and many people jumping into it without doing some of the proper checks and balances. So what threats do people and businesses need to be aware of? Chris, why don't you start us off? Sure. So uh, with video conferencing being a popular um, tool nowadays that individuals are using to uh, communicate from a work from home uh, environment, um, many 
threat actors are now abusing vulnerabilities that have been discovered in some of these tools to um, potentially infiltrate uh, meetings and uh, and listen into uh, conversations and whatnot. So the best practices um, currently right now is to ensure that all video conferencing software that you are utilizing at home, uh, both from a business perspective as well as a personal perspective, uh, have been updated to the latest supported versions, as well as ensuring that you're not using uh, you know, some unknown third-party um, video conferencing software as, you know, it's, it's not as secure as something that's well-known uh, and properly vendor-supported. So I completely agree with everything that's said, and I, and I want to give folks another perspective about threat and attack. Uh, a lot of attackers are actually using our propensity to use remote access, and of course, uh, you know, video conferencing is a means of denial of service. And so they're actually hitting uh, these sites right on the hour, right on the half hour, to try to overwhelm the connection to prevent a lot of these businesses from being able to connect. Uh, and so something I know we've done at Cisco is we've actually uh, taken it upon ourselves for all of our internal meetings, we offset by five or 10 minutes throughout the day. Uh, and what that does is it reduces the load overall on the system, but it also avoids some of those attempts to denial of service or DDoS, uh, you know, these, these various services that are providing remote access. Really great tangible tip, I love that. Theo, anything to add to that? Absolutely. Uh, patch, 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 update, update, patch, and update. Uh, you know, we can't say this enough. Make it part of your morning routine when you sit down and you start your laptop up. Run through your tool sets that you use throughout the day. Just do a quick scan, do updates. The reality is these uh, security gaps or vulnerabilities have existed in these tools for a long time. It's just standing out now because the attackers are actually really targeting and pushing it. And for that matter, the security researchers are really on top of this because they realize it's become such potentially a lucrative or um, effective attack vector. So the, the irony in all of this is if we write this out in a few months from now, these tool sets, as long as the security researchers and uh, vendors keep working on this and patching these tools as fast as they can and we keep updating it, these platforms are actually going to be a lot more secure than they were even a month or a month and a half ago uh, because it's getting so much energy and attention. And then the other big thing, uh, you know, a lot of times we're worried about the security of a tool set or security of a platform, but so much of it goes into how you're actually using it and if you're applying best practices and common sense a lot of times. So, you know, if it's a sensitive uh, meeting that you're having on there, did you set a password? Um, are you monitoring people uh, coming in and out of the meeting room? Uh, a lot of the advice that we give our customers and to our employees themselves is, listen, just treat this as a meeting room. If somebody walked into a meeting room and you were sitting there with your team meeting, you'd stop and ask who they were, you know, maybe welcome them, check. If somebody gets up and leaves suddenly, you take note of that. So there's there's some basic elements there that we that we advise people to um, take account for, and then definitely just whenever you can, use those passwords, make sure that you control access, uh, sort of the same way you, you would close the door so that uh, like unwanted people don't walk in or overhear the conversations. Right, and, and passwords and security that comes with setting passwords tends to come up in the news from time to time when people tend to be a bit more lax with taking an approach to password security and complexity. Um, first off, Mike, what would you say is the biggest mistake that people are making when it comes to passwords? Yeah, you know, this, this is probably the number one thing that people can do to protect themselves, whether it's business or personal. You know, interestingly, uh, 2019 was the first year that we had a majority of the attacks 
dealt with uh, credential theft alone. Uh, there wasn't actually a, you know, a further infiltration of data. They were just literally taking credentials. And the reason that the attackers do this is that credentials have been stolen so many times. And because the big mistake folks make is that they use the same email address and password for different sites, they realize that, wow, all I have to do is make sure that you're a user of that site and I can try, you know, not only the passwords that I have, but looking at your data, you know, the algorithms that these guys use, they understand, your, you know, your password tendencies, what you've used over time, what your next five or six passwords are going to be before you even know. And so keeping those passwords unique, uh, making sure that, and, and this be, can become kind of cumbersome, but every single site, whether it's banking, whether it's your utility, uh, you know, anything that you might do for, uh, you know, for business, obviously, everything should have a different password and it should be complex. It should be impossible to remember. Uh, and I would suggest for anyone out there, you know, spend a little bit, you know, spend $20 and get a, get a user copy of, you know, something like 1Password that can manage all of your logins securely, store them in a vault, uh, automatically fills your forms for you so that you can have a complex, you know, 20-character password, uh, you know, everywhere you go. And I would say the second thing that's absolutely critical, every tool that you use, whether it's your, your camera system, whether it's your bank, whether it's your utility or otherwise, if they offer multi-factor authentication, set it up because multi-factor authentication prevents these thieves that have taken credentials from simply having your email address and having your password, being able to guess and, and use a credential stuffing attack to get into that business because that business is set up to ask you another question. And that is, here's a code. Do you have the most recent code? Is it valid? And that provides another level of protection that is absolutely probably one of the most critical things that you can do right now to protect yourself. Theo, anything to add to that? You know, I 100% agree on the password manager. Uh, we tell people, use that password manager. So you have your one, pass, one password that's going to let you into your password manager. Make that complex. Make that a passphrase. That doesn't have to be a difficult word. Um, you can do something that said, I love my summer vacation, nine, 1999, um, and put one or, one or two special characters in there um, as part of the letters. You do something like that, and suddenly it becomes easy to have an 18-, 20-digit password because this is going to be your gold standard. All your all your passwords and information and access is going to be locked in there, so make sure that's a good one. Uh, Multi-factor, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. We get into a lot of discussions with, uh, especially when you start talking to some security experts, uh, they talk about the ability that attackers have these days to intercept these multi-factor authentication requests, and therefore you'll hear some people talk and say that multi-factor is actually uh, a weak form of security now. But the reality is, when we look at this, it's just about making the attackish world difficult. If it's more difficult to get to your information than potentially another target, that is how attackers wave They have finite amount of resources and time, and they're trying to find the path of least resistance to get into an account. So they're trying to break in, and they've got 10,000 user accounts that they're going through, and a bunch of them have two-factor authentication on. Unless they truly, truly want to very, very specifically target you, and that is extremely rare to get that level of technical expertise targeting someone. Uh, the reality is they're going to look at this and move on to something else and go find that easier target to compromise. So turn on that multi-factor authentication, use that passphrase on your password, and please, please do not stop using the same passwords across different platforms. Right. Now, another form of attack is via email. There's been a huge increase in phishing attempts since this global health crisis has come about. So what would you say are some best practices for spotting those kinds of email attacks? Chris. 
so uh, one of the best practices for spotting an email attack is definitely taking a look at the email headers and seeing who the mail is coming from. Uh, if you're not familiar with the address um, where that mail is coming from, there's a good chance that that could be potentially malicious. Um, you know, second best practice would be make sure you don't click uh, any links within an email, um, especially if you're not sure uh, if the sender is potentially malicious. Uh, clicking on any links, whether if they seem innocuous or not, can do a couple of different things. It could allow an attacker to perform a drive-by attack on your system, which could allow them to either extract information or even get remote access to your device, uh, or could potentially just profile your system, which can then be used in a later attack um, where they would now have more information about the type of browser you're using, the type of operating system you're using, and in general, just maybe even grabbing credentials from you. Uh, so clicking links is definitely a very uh, dangerous thing to do in an email, and um, you should definitely be uh, paying attention for um, you know, potentially malicious links. Um, but another thing to look out for in um, phishing campaigns in general is uh, many phishing campaigns, especially the ones that aren't terribly sophisticated, will have uh, lots of spelling mistakes, uh, would definitely try and increase the urgency of, of uh, making you do some sort of action which could put you at risk, um, specifically around either clicking a link or opening an attachment. Um, or you know potentially sending money somewhere. These are the things to be looking out for. Anything that has that sense of urgency where you need to do something immediately is something to step back, think twice about, and uh, and really take a good look at the the email to make sure that it is uh, coming from the person uh, that you believe it's coming from. Yeah, Mike. Anything to add to that? I agree with Chris 100%. The other thing I would say is you know beware of embedded graphics because that's another way that they get you. Uh, and I would, you know, I would say that, you know, just like Chris was saying, I mean, this is a, it's a tone of an email. It's, it's, a, it's a feeling that somebody gets when they read it that makes them want to click it. And I would say the human factor is probably the one thing you can't control. And you really you almost have to say, I can't trust myself. Uh, you know, just two years ago, and two years is a long time in, in the threat world, how many times this has been improved. But I remember, you know, a DNS hijack, which allowed attackers to, uh, to intercept emails that had resume uh, in, the, uh, in the subject. And the goal was to send an email back to someone who had just sent their email to, uh, sent a resume to a legitimate company. They would respond as that person with email headers that looked identical to what they had just sent via that DNS hijack. And they would say, thank you so much for your resume. Uh, by the way, you have a typo on page two. Uh, it's in the first paragraph. I've included, uh, included your resume back to you. You know, there isn't a security person on the planet who just sent an email to this person directly and got a response from them directly who wouldn't click on their own resume. And this installed, you know, ransomware and, and a variety of other things that's been used for quite a lot. So, I mean, you can't even always trust who you thought you were talking to. So, you know, it, it lends itself again to making sure that you've got some second level of protection besides just an email security platform and your own capabilities. You know, having something else on your, on your local system that can actually do a double check of a URL or a double check of a DNS, uh, uh, DNS resolution or something like that to help keep you safe when you make those mistakes that everybody's going to make. Right. Absolutely agree with everything that's been said. I want to add one more thing, and it, don't forget the human element. Uh, pick up the phone and call. Like we've seen so many cases where, you know, the actual crafting of the email is fantastic. Um, it could be coincidental that it just lines up uh, with something that you even didn't expect. I had personally, I had a case where I ordered an online speaker. I was extremely excited, and uh, sure enough, there's an email from uh, UPS 
about my order being delayed. And I, I almost clicked it, and I realized, but wait a minute, I actually paid for that. <laughs> it was a different delivery mechanism, and it caught me. But I had to take a step back for a moment and just think. But in scenarios like these, if you have any doubt, pick up the phone. Uh, you know, Call your bank. Call your boss. Call that manager that just bounced the, the resume back to you um, and say, like, hey, just, you know, this is different behavior. I'm not used to an interviewer to send my resume back to me or, you know, just sometimes it's worth just taking that moment and stepping back. Uh, in my, my, my dad's own company, they had an attempt of whaling. So that's where you get this email that instructs you to transfer money and it's pretending to be either a supplier or um, a, like a, a, a vendor or somebody that would legitimately be requesting payment and it, and it tries to change the account numbers on you. And in this case there, uh, the actual scam went along pretty far until somebody at the organization decided to pick up the phone and just call the person on the other side. And of course, as soon as they spoke to them, they said, we have no idea about what you're talking about changing bank accounts. And so they were fortunate enough that they had flagged it before the bank released the money and they could retrieve it. But, you know, it's just the, as space picks up and you get busier and busier, sometimes it's just important to take a step back and add the human element back into it. Really great advice. And I love these examples, really tangible. And I think anyone can can relate to that. So thank you. So shifting gears now, let's talk about inside the home. I know a lot of people have purchased smart home speakers, um, but I'm just wondering what the security around that looks like. How can people ensure that these devices are secure? Let's start with Theo. So I'm going to take a page from Chris's book a little bit here. I'm going to borrow off his analogy a little bit. He talked earlier about the laptop and Starbucks and pretending your laptop is glued down and anybody could you know, come up and see. So what are you going to do when you step away? But I want, pe- I want people to run through a similar train, uh, process of thought when they're looking at IoT in the homes, right? Uh, you have to start thinking, especially when you get into cameras, microphones, uh, where am I pointing that? So sometimes the exercise is just to stop back and say, if somebody would be able to compromise this, how would I feel about this, right? If it's a camera that's monitoring a storage shed somewhere that I'm not too worried about, that might put it in a different risk profile or a different element. If it's a camera that I'm pointing internally facing, or as we're seeing a lot of cases, you know, some of these new wireless nanny cams that's actually pointing at my child's crib or where I'm working with my children in a room, that is something I want to be acutely aware of. And if that's the case, it is worth taking the extra half an hour and either read the manual, change the defaults, make sure that you're doing the basics that you need to do there to secure this, um, or reach out to a friend or family member or if you're an organ, you know, reach out to somebody in the industry that can help assist you with this. Um, it is it is so absolutely worth it. But, you know, again, a lot of the IoT elements that you're going to start looking at here, it's just, it's a matter of fact. It's part of our life. It's not going to go away. It's going to become more and more uh, prominent. I would just say, you know, at a high level, like stop and do that quick assessment, figure out how do you feel, where am I placing it, what is that microphone potentially listening to when I'm not using the device, and what what could the situation be, and then make sure that you're taking the, the necessary steps accordingly. Any quick thoughts on yeah. that from, from uh, Mike or Chris? Yeah, I'd like to jump in there, actually. Uh, this is Chris. So I uh, totally agree with what Theo is saying there. Another thing I wanted to bring up uh, is, I guess, the, um, the, the vendor that you're purchasing uh, this IoT equipment from. There are a lot of third-party vendors out uh, that are available on Amazon, as an example, and the security um, policies for some of these tools are not as strong as some of the more well-developed uh, technologies that are out there. So uh, keeping in mind who you're purchasing 
this uh, technology from these smart home devices, um, you know, that's always something to, to uh, pay attention of. Uh, you know, there, there could be um, some devices that aren't as well supported as something like, uh, let's say, a Google or an Amazon device. And putting something like that in your home does increase the risk of, you know, having some sort of backdoor into that environment. So uh, ensuring that you are using reputable vendors is, is something to consider. Um, and on top of that, uh, as Theo mentioned, making sure you read the manuals for all of these devices, uh, ensuring that you change default passwords, ensuring that, you know, if you're using uh, an email account associated with this device now in order to access it remotely, that you are using a unique password again uh, for this particular device. Um, you know, a lot of individuals will reuse passwords for all of their homework, uh, home uh, IoT devices, and ensuring that you have a different password for each device will help separate the um, potential of uh, these devices becoming um, hijacked uh, potentially down the road. If I can add like a, a, just to what Chris has said here, and I just actually thought about a great example. I actually have uh, a friend who's in the security industry with me, and uh, he bought one of these smart home locks with a keypad that you can key in and uh, this one doesn't have Bluetooth, but at least it gives you that key capability so you don't need your key. Uh, he actually took the time, reset the default password too, but didn't really bother to read the manual, sort of clicked through and said, I'm good to go. And uh, so he's picking up his uh, four-year-old from daycare one day, and they pull up to the house, and his four-year-old does not know the, the key to the door, the access code to the door. And sure enough, a four-year-old runs up, up to the door. He turns around, four-year-old's in the house, the door's wide open. And uh, his first reaction was to think, I never locked the door. So he walked up and he asked the four-year-old, he said, listen, did you did you uh, just open the door? Did I forget to lock it? And the four-year-old says, no, I, I unlocked it. And he said, but how, how did you do this? And the four-year-old called him back and said, look here, if you push this little logo button, and this lock had its logo in the middle, if you push this button, it unlocks the door for you. And what had happened was this specific lock, whether we're, I'm not sure if it was in a demo mode at a store or whether it ships this way, but it actually comes with a demo mode that if you push that logo button, it unlocks the door. And so he grabbed the manual, went through scan, and sure enough, he found it as one of the tips is to go make sure you disable that feature. But, you know, there's a case where this is actually, uh, we, are, we are people in security and we do that basic, but just that extra quick scan of the manual. Um, luckily for him, it was his four-year-old that discovered this, but... Uh, definitely an interesting scenario to consider and just take that extra moment. <laughs> and maybe someone that will be in the security industry themselves as they grow older, since they're clearly very <laughs> savvy. <laughs> Final question for everyone. I just want um, to pose to each of our panelists here um, a moment to look ahead. What is the one thing that you think is going to stay or that should be really top of mind when it comes to the future of security while working from home? Mike, let's start with you. So my personal opinion is that this is going to last a while. And even when it's over, if it's over, uh, there's going to be a high percentage of folks that are probably not going to go back to the office because there may not be an office to go back to, as many companies are, in fact, looking to get out of, of brick-and-mortar real estate going to more temporary space. Uh, you know, with that, introduces a whole new set of challenges. So I would say this. You know, follow the best practices for security and ensure that if you have to work from home, that working from home is actually feasible techno technologically, meaning your link is fast enough, you've got that secure router, uh, you've got a good VPN connection, you've got a secure camera, um, you know, you've got endpoint protection, everyone in your house knows the boundaries of, 
you know, where work is and, and where it's not so that they know, you know, exactly what not to interfere with, et cetera. I mean, plan for the long haul because it's very, it's very likely that that's where we're going to be uh, even a year or two from now. So uh, it's always going to be on our mind. It's always changing. And I would say that, you know, kind of as the last thing, uh, beware of the attackers that are taking advantage of the current pandemic uh, by, you know, leveraging malvertising and malware inside of some of these uh, coverage maps for disease spread and things like this. This is really prevalent right now. Uh, and we don't expect that to change as they're finding all new, very unique and creative ways to, to get people to click on these maps and, and somehow get infected. Theo, what would you say? I think we're, well, I know for a fact the world has changed. We're not, we're never going to go back to the way we were. Uh, I think what, what we're seeing here is work has followed us home, but in a new way. Uh, you know, it's just, it's not just feasible anymore to think about my home network as my personal network where I go home and I browse the internet and uh, I watch my Netflix and my videos. It has become an element of work. Uh, but I think the secret here is that it's actually great for us as a society to up our security skill sets and our security awareness. We're doing things today on our home network and we did before already, like online banking. You don't want people to have access to your all of your money and your nest egg that you're putting away and investing, right? So. You know, it's not a bad thing to up your security on your home network. And to that, to that extent, uh, it doesn't have to be the, the highest grade, uh, highest quality gear that you're putting on there, but make sure that you have something reputable, have something decent, make sure that it's configured correctly. And then ultimately, again, make sure that you're using it correctly. Make sure that you're using it uh, with just even a little bit of security in mind will take you a lot further. Uh, at CDW, we, a lot of times we talk about this concept of digital citizens. So we want... We're asking organizations to train their employees with tips and techniques that makes them better digital citizens because we want that to follow them wherever they go, whether that's at home doing online banking, uh, where you use your multi-factor authentication, you're making sure things are encrypted, your Wi-Fi is secure. Those are the same concepts and principles that you should apply at your at the office. You should apply it anywhere where you're being a digital citizen and where you're active uh, on the internet and on network. Great, and Chris, so I think the it's it's probably a couple of different things. You know, remaining vigilant um, during times of uh, you know uncertainty is for sure something that everyone needs to be aware of. Um, you know, specifically surrounding you know phishing campaigns and and the new vulnerabilities that are coming out um, every single day on technology. You know, making sure that you've kept up to date with uh, all of your patches on your system and uh, you know firmware updates on on hardware that you're utilizing in your environments. You know, all of these things help to prevent you from having a large attack surface for an attacker to uh, infiltrate your network. Makes sense. All right, well, great to talk to all three of you today. I'm gonna go and change my passwords now. <laughs>